All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I'm joined by my regular co-host for the 20th Century Movie Club. Mike, how are you today, sir? I am well, Dana. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. So we're at volume 16. Now, just like we have been with the past couple episodes, we've been going decade by decade uh, with the 1970s, the 1960s, and now we're going to land into uh, an area that I admit to having very little expertise in, and that is going to be the 1950s. What are your, your general thoughts on the 1950s overall? Uh, I think it was actually a great decade for for film. I mean, if you think uh, about a lot of the movies that we sort of consider all-time classics, a, a lot of them came out in the 50s and a lot of directors really started that would that would become important defining directors throughout the 60s and 70s really started coming into their own in the 50s. So I think it's a pretty great decade. I agree with you. And I'll just say my picks right now, the three of them couldn't be more different from each other. And I had a this I'll admit this to be the most challenging time I've had on this series so far putting together this list of movies. How was it for you? Was it easy? No problem. It wasn't, you know, it actually gave me an opportunity to watch a couple of movies that I had uh, long wanted to see and had just kind of never gotten around. So it was easy in that regard because I knew I wanted to watch those. Uh, coming up with a wild card was a bit more difficult because I hadn't, you know, usually for a wild card, I always pick one that is just kind of one that I've seen so many times that I can just recite from memory basically that way if there's a panic i can fall back on it and um that was a little more difficult because while i've seen a lot of the movies from this decade admittedly i've seen them once and a lot of them i saw 20 years ago you know when i was in college and kind of first getting into classic cinema so it was it was more difficult i think than than some of the other ones we've done for sure absolutely so uh as always the floor is yours what's your first pick for volume 16 the 1950s of the 20th Century Movie Club. My first film comes from 1955. It's the only film from acclaimed actor Charles Lawton that he actually directed. It actually was such a an epic box office failure when it came out that he never directed a film again, even though he was this acclaimed phenomenal actor. And it's one of the more unsettling movies I think that came out in the 50s. It's a, uh, a thriller called Night of the Hunter. For those who haven't seen Night of the Hunter, it stars Robert Mitchum as a preacher by the name of Harry Powell. He's famous for one of the most famous images from it is he's got love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. He's not really a preacher. This isn't a spoiler. It's the main plot of the movie. He's actually a misogynistic serial killer who finds wealthy widows or women and ends up romancing them and then killing them and stealing their money. Into this comes a family where the father, played by Peter Graves, has come into some money uh, through ill-gotten gains. Right as he gets arrested, he hides it, he's executed, and Harry Powell comes in and romances the mother, played by Shelley Winters, and uh, the kids know something is up. And so what it really is is sort of this battle of wits, uh, not even battle of wits, but battle between these two children and Robert Mitchum, um, ultimately culminating with a very, very intensive sort of chase component in the third act. I don't want to get into any more details. Dana, have you seen Night of the Hunter? Nope. I'm familiar with it. It's one that, again, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record when I do this show, but it's one I've certainly heard of and one that's it's been on my radar for some time. And I mean, no better time like the present to say, all right, it's it's on the 
short list, and I'm certainly going to watch it. Well, and in fairness to you, it's actually one, uh, you know, I'd mentioned just a few minutes ago that that there were a couple that I had long put off watching and, and took this opportunity to watch them, which is always a bit of a risk for this show because you never know, are they actually going to rise to the level that I'm going to want to recommend them. This one 100% lives up to all of the hype, primarily for Mitchum. Mitchum is, you know, if, if anybody's ever seen a Robert Mitchum movie, he has a certain presence in movies, whether he's playing a, a I guess a hero. He rarely played what we would call hero heroes, but whether he's playing a hero or in this case, just an absolutely reprehensible villain, he always had such a commanding and kind of unsettling presence. And this might be the ultimate Mitchum performance. Uh, A lot of people would say that uh, some of his film noir work is uh, certainly, you know, he's well known for Cape Fear Uh, originating the role in that that De Niro would play in the remake. But I think this stands as his uh, defining performance. And I really can't recommend the movie enough. Keep in mind for people that haven't seen it that might be a little more wired to modern sensibilities. It did come out in 1955. It's short. It's only 92 minutes, but it doesn't it's not paced like a modern movie. Um, And so if you're expecting something, you know, Think of an intense modern thriller seven or something along those lines. It's certainly not going to have that same vibe, but Mitchum is just by himself worth seeing the movie. Okay, excellent. I'm looking forward to watching that one. For my first pick, this is where I'm going to admit something that I've probably never admitted on the show before, and that is that sometimes I am not familiar with iconic, incredibly iconic actors, but I'm well aware of who they are. And for this one, I'm going to talk about Vincent Price for a moment, because the man is an absolute legend. And I I was first introduced to him as the guy who did the voiceover in Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I knew that Vincent Price had been in a ton of movies, and I knew that he was an absolute gem amongst the horror movie fans. But I'll admit to you that I had never seen a Vincent Price movie before. I maybe caught glimpses here and there on YouTube or, you know, if there was a documentary I was watching about, you know, iconic horror films, I would see clips. But there's just, with his filmography, it's just never something I had ever seen. So I decided to sit down this weekend and watch 1959's The House on Haunted Hill, which I was doing some research and a lot of people were, you know, were saying that, you know, this is arguably one of his best performances. And look, if you've never seen the movie, it's a very interesting plot. It just centers around a very eccentric millionaire who's played by Vincent Price, who's with his fifth wife. And he decides to throw a, well, a, you know, interesting party where he invites five complete strangers to spend the night in his, I'm going to say this, quote, haunted house. Now, if these five individuals are able to survive the entire night, they'll each receive $10,000. Now, I did the math and this would be around $88,000 today. But what's interesting is, is Price has dubious motives for inviting each person there. And he's got, he has, I don't want to get into much into spoilers because if you've never seen the movie, it will catch you right away the first 30 seconds into the film. But it's just, I now get why Vincent Price is so beloved. I now understand because I could have watched, this is not a long movie. I could have watched six hours of this guy. He was absolutely terrific. And the movie is incredibly interesting. It has a lot of whodunits, a lot of plot twists, but I'm not going to say anything more than that. Mike, have you seen The House on Haunted Hill? I have. Uh, I love this recommendation because it gives us a chance to talk about a 
couple of different things. One is you're absolutely right about Vincent Price. The the man is, uh, he's iconic. He is a legend. He made a lot of movies. He was a working actor and he made a lot of movies. And I'll be honest with people listening. Look, they, they weren't all gems, but he was always excellent in them. He just really never phoned it in, even though he was such a unique character with his voice and his cadence and stuff like that. He could have phoned it in easily, but he never really did. Um, and he, he made a lot of really good movies. One I like that uh, is about 180 degrees from House on Haunted Hill in terms of unsettlingness. It's really intensive one is called uh, The Conqueror Worm or Witchfinder General. I'm not going to talk too much about it because I'll probably recommend it at some point on the show, but it's a great one if you like Vincent Price, seek that out. The other thing it gives us a chance to talk about is the almighty William Castle. Yes. Uh, so, so Dana, how familiar are you with William Castle? Not as familiar as I should be, and I'm realizing that especially after watching The House on Haunted Hill. So for those who don't know, William Castle is, I mean, he is what movie makers should be, right? He was this larger than life director and producer, produced a bunch of relatively low budget horror movies in the 50s, but also created a sort of roadshow type environment for them. He would do these gimmicks at the screenings of the movies to try and, you know, keep the audience engaged, keep them entertained, because he understood, you know, in the 50s, we're starting to get television and movies are starting to uh, be kind of kind of like we're dealing with now, where while movies box office is going up, actual attendance is going down because people are staying home and streaming things. And we all have such nice TVs and sound systems now that it doesn't feel unless it's a big movie like Endgame doesn't feel like we're missing much by watching a movie at home. Well, it was the same situation in the 50s. And so Castle created all of these unique gimmicks to try and get people back into the theaters. So for instance, with House on Haunted Hill, during screenings, a uh, it was filmed in a Murgo uh, or a Murjo. I can't remember how it's which it's pronounced, but a skeleton on wires with glowing red eyes would fly out over the audience as they were watching the movie. Um, he used things like uh, smell a vision or he would electrify the chairs to give audiences electric shocks. He was such a character and such a unique person. And a lot of his movies are actually shockingly entertaining. You would think that somebody that's got to resort to these kind of schlocky tricks wouldn't make good movies. But as you just said, with House on Haunted Hill, it's an entertaining, well-done horror movie, especially for 1959. And so William Castle, if you're not familiar with him, please take some time to seek him out, read about him. A tangential movie I would recommend is Joe Dante's Matinee, where John Goodman's character is heavily influenced by William Castle. He was just... He was a treat and a delight to cinema, and uh, it's we're getting farther and farther away from him. And so I'm glad you recommended this because I want to encourage people to seek him out and seek out some of his other movies. Yeah, and I was going to ask you if Matinee was inspired by that. It absolutely 100% is. Dante is a huge William Castle fan. It was kind of almost like his love letter to William Castle. So I have to ask you, like I always do, when there's... With a film like House on a Haunted Hill, there was a remake that came out in 1999, and you had Jeffrey Rush 
playing, essentially playing the Vincent Price type character. What did you think of that movie? I love it. I mean, am I going to sit here and say it's a great movie? No, but I love it. I think in terms of a late 90s horror movie, you know, a lot of people tend to think that the 90s was a bad decade for horror and it wasn't as good as the 80s. It wasn't the cornucopia of awesome that we had from the 80s, but there was still good movies that came out and I think this is one of them. I think it is actually a lot of fun. Um, It was one of the first movies that used, it's been used so much now where ghosts are shot in kind of a weird frame rate. So when you see a ghost, they like judder and move and shake weirdly and stuff like that. Um, It ended up getting used a lot in video games and and lower budget movies. This was one of the first movies to really do that technique. Um, It's got a rock solid cast. Like you said, it's got Jeffrey Rush. It's got Jeffrey Combs, Chris Kattan, Tay Diggs, uh, Ali Larder from the Final Destination movies, Famke Janssen from the uh, X-Men movies. I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know. Have you seen this one, Dana? I I saw it in the theater, Um, but that's it. One time, one time in the theater. And I don't remember, I don't think of having negative reactions to the movie. I think I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably due for a rewatch at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's the epitome of a two-star, two-and-a-half-star horror movie. You get some friends together, you have some beers and some pizza, and you watch the movie. It's not going to be life-changing, but I think for an hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes, I think it's an entertaining way to to kill some time. I think I often get this movie, referring to the remake, of House on Haunted Hill. I I often get this movie mixed up with The Haunting, which came out relatively around the same time. Same year. Same year. If I remember correctly. And I always, when people say, what happened in House on Haunted Hill? I'm like, oh, Owen Wilson gets decapitated in such a wacky, crazy way. And I'm like, they're like, no, no, that's The Haunting. I'm like, you're right. That's The Haunting. I get those movies mixed up. And I would definitely say uh, that I... You know, I, I never like to be negative about movies on this show, but I think The Haunting is about as close to garbage as a, as a movie can get. It's a remake of The the Haunting uh, based on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And Robert Wise's original Haunting is, I think, one of the 10 best horror movies of all time. I think that movie is amazing. So Jan DeBont, who we love on this show, trying to turn it into a big CGI special effects spectacle. I did not enjoy that movie. I would definitely watch House on Haunted Hill, the remake, a thousand times before I watched The Haunting again. What do you got for your second pick of the episode? So my second pick is another one of those that I had, uh, I was supposed to have watched a long time ago. I never got around to it, primarily because I'm not, as people that have listened know, I love Westerns, but I am not the biggest fan of the most iconic Western actor of all time, and that's John Wayne. I'm just not a huge John Wayne fan. I'm not going to lie. I've seen John Wayne movies that I've enjoyed. I I enjoy his original True Grit. I love The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but I tend to not get a lot out of John Wayne movies. But there was always one that people who liked Westerns or knew John Wayne or just people who knew a lot about film had always told me, you need to see this one. This is the John Wayne movie that needs to be seen. And that is 1956's John Ford Western, The Searchers. And you know what? Everybody was right. I needed to see The Searchers. I needed to see The Searchers a long time ago. I wish I could have seen it on a big screen. Uh, For those who haven't seen it, The Searchers is uh, the story of a uh, Civil War veteran named Ethan Edwards who returns after eight years to his family homestead. 
trying to sort of reacclimate to civilian life, if you will, when the homestead is uh, attacked by a group of Comanches who end up kidnapping his niece. And what follows is a years-long pursuit on Ethan's part, as well as with a, a couple of other people to try and track down and rescue his niece. What makes The Searchers so iconic is it really is kind of almost one of the first postmodern westerns. It's it's the nascent postmodern western. We talked in the last episode about Once Upon a Time in the West and how Sergio Leone really brought a different kind of edge and a different kind of feel to what had been cl- a very classic genre at that point. This is kind of the foundation for that. It's still a 1950s movie. It's still very traditionally shot. It's John Ford, so it's very traditional. But what makes it interesting is that Ethan Edwards is a thoroughly unsympathetic main character. He is a racist. He is a uh, murderer. He is just an awful person. And, And I'm not even saying that with the benefit of, you know, 50, 60 years of hindsight. The movie was designed. Ethan was not supposed to be likable. It's really Ford trying to, and admittedly a little bit inelegantly, trying to analyze the type of racism that would lead people to be willing to commit genocide. Um, And so there's a lot going on in this movie, uh, in addition to just being one of the most beautifully shot movies you will ever see was filmed in Monument Valley here in Utah and Arizona. And it's Ford takes full advantage of the cinemascope frame and the technical, the ability of technicolor to create those deep, vibrant colors. I mean, the movie's just absolutely visually stunning, but it's also kind of upsetting and unnerving. And I think that's its greatest strength is this is a relatively bad man trying to do a good thing, but arguably for the wrong reasons. Um, And so I think it's definitely worth watching. I don't want to get into any more of it. Have you seen The Searchers, Dana? All right. So this is interesting because last weekend when I was starting to compile the list of films I wanted to do, I wanted to potentially include a Western, but I wanted to make sure that it was something I hadn't seen before, because I'll admittedly say that I haven't seen a lot from the 1950s. I've seen, you know, the iconic classic movies, but so I started Googling, you know, 1950s Westerns and and every article I would come up with, every article I would come across would always have this one on it. I'll tell you this. I had this movie queued up, ready to watch. And then through a series of uh, circumstances beyond my control, I had to go out of the house for a couple hours and, and help a friend out. And when I got back, I didn't have time to watch. And I said, all right, well, I'll I'll put this in my back pocket and maybe this will be something I'll watch a little bit later down the road. Maybe it'd be a possible recommend because if there's one thing that I'm really starting to warm up to with this series is the Western. You know, with you recommended a, a couple of Westerns and I've watched them and I really, really enjoyed them. So this one actually came really close, but this may be my Sunday night movie tonight because every Sunday I make it a point now to watch a movie I've never seen before. And, you know, spoiler alert, I watched Terms of Endearment last Sunday for the first time. I'd never seen that before in my life. So this might be my film tonight. So I'm I am amped up to watch this because, look, John Ford, what else do you have to say? You add John Wayne into the mix, who, by the way. I agree with you. John Wayne plays one character in every movie, basically. So I think you could get a little bit of redundancy with him, but I'm definitely all in on this one. Great recommendation. Well, and what makes him playing one character is the way a great director like Ford can take that character and 
channel the same character into a different direction, right? Give him just a little bit harder of an edge and give him just a little bit. And, and what it really is a lot is the way the other characters react to Ethan as he goes about things. It really is. And, and you know, one thing I would say to people is please, please do not watch this one on your phone. Do not watch this one on your iPad. If you're going to watch this movie, please try and watch it on the biggest screen you can because it makes use of every inch of big screen. Um, and for people who may still be a little bit on the fence too, this is also a, a massively influential movie. Um, Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad cites it as one of his favorite movies and even has stated that there's specific references to it in, in Breaking Bad. Um, uh, Star Wars fans, if you've seen the Clone Wars uh, and, and some of the other Star Wars stuff, they they there are, are references. Uh, specifically, one of the big ones is in A New Hope. Lucas almost specifically references the way uh, Luke's homestead is destroyed is almost identical or certainly strongly influenced by the way the family homestead is destroyed in The Searchers. There's even a reference to it in Avengers Age of Ultron. Everybody knows I'm a huge Marvel guy. There is a shot for or a scene recreation, almost identical shot in Avengers Age of Ultron from this movie. So you will watch this movie and go, oh, I have somehow seen this movie even though i've never seen it so i really really recommend it black and white or color color beautiful color technicolor just some of the most beautiful color you will ever see all right because i intentionally didn't watch any trailers and i didn't do much i just uh, it's interesting one of the articles had a black and white photo they might have just done that for dramatic effect i think it was probably a uh, publicity photo because sure. publicity photos are typically black and white so that's my guess excellent all right perfect for my second pick now this one came out of nowhere this one was really it's funny how we uh, we get the inspiration sometimes so just to lay it all out here i was uh, like i do more more probably than I should. I was watching Jaws again on the 4th of July because, <laughs> because why not? I do that quite a bit. And, you know, when the movie was over, I get into the, the supplemental material that's available on the Blu-ray. And by the way, you know, just if you're a fan of Jaws and you don't have the, the most recent Blu-ray that came out, the supplemental material on it is, is fantastic. The documentary, the, the shark is still not working is, I mean, it's worth the price of admission alone. I'm watching it and it's, it's all about the behind the scenes of trying to get the film made. And there's this discussion going on about how are they actually going to get a shark? in the movie. And there was discussions about, well, maybe they could train a, a real shark. And of course, that's not possible. Everybody they talked to said, you know, you can't do this. This can't be done. We can't build a mechanical shark that would work in the ocean. It can't be done. And then along comes a special effects wizard who deals in large scale mechanical or animatronic, if you will, effects. But he's retired. And his name is Bob Maddie. And they came to Bob Batty, who, again, I mentioned was retired, and he was the first person to say, yeah, yeah, we could do this. And Bob Maddy's huge claim to fame was, and I'm going to get into in just a moment, was a special effects sequence that was done for the 1954 Richard Fleischer-directed film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, this movie stars Kirk Douglas and James Mason, and, and I just want to tell you that I saw this movie when I was in the 80s when I was a kid. And I don't remember, I didn't remember much about it at all. I just remember, you know, Kirk, Doug Kirk Douglas was completely over the top. 
James Mason as Captain Nemo was cool as ice. But I always remembered one specific scene. And that is, well, before I get into that scene, you know, the basic plot of the movie is that, you know, there's wild rumors going around that there's a sea monster that's attacking ships. It takes place in 1868. And a, a renowned professor and of his colleagues are dispatched uh, along with the, a famed harpoonist slash whale hunter played by Kirk Douglas to discover whether or not there is actually a sea monster. I'm not going to get too much more into the plot details there except to say that and I'm working on the assumption that most people have seen this movie and that most people know who Captain Nemo is and most people know what the Nautilus is but there's a scene halfway through the movie where the underwater submersible known as the Nautilus is attacked by a giant squid and I'm telling you right now that this entire sequence is on par with anything that comes out today with modern practical effects. It's worth the price of admission alone. And, you know, hats off to Bob Maddie. So I I rented this movie and watched it. And I was just wait, waiting to get to this, get to the giant squid, get to the giant squid, squid scene. But along the way, I was like, this is a really fun movie. And this is a really spectacular movie. And I hate to say this, but hats off to Disney for pulling this off because it it it's a stunningly beautiful film and for a movie that is 60 something years old the special effects are are brilliant and i'm i'm just going to keep gushing over this film so mike i know you've seen it 20,000 leagues under the sea your thoughts i've seen it when i was like 8 <laughs> so i don't remember much about it i i do remember the the big scene uh and honestly i also really remember the big scene because in the old submarine ride in disneyland it was uh before it became finding uh nemo themed it was uh 20,000 leagues under the sea themed so um but honestly it's been so long since i've seen it i can't really comment on it too much um i'll have to add it to the list what i can say is talk a little bit about how you know you said kudos to disney for pulling it off a lot of people you know it's pretty popular now to hate on disney and i get it i mean they they're they're this mega conglomerate i mean the five highest grossing movies of the year so far are all disney movies whether it's marvel or pixar disney itself um but this is also a movie studio and i'm referring specifically to the movie studio component of it not the mega corporation that's trying to swallow us all this is a movie studio that at several different points in the history of cinema has done nothing but move cinema forward, typically from a technological or, or technical standpoint. But nonetheless, like Disney in the 50s was doing some really incredible stuff with with movies. And especially, you know, Disney was one of the that studio was one of the big uh motivators behind the creation of Technicolor and bringing color to cinema and things like CinemaScope and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm not surprised that when you rewatch this, you were pleasantly surprised with the quality of it and how well done it is. Um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to rewatching it because I think it's one that I definitely, you know, I see about it. I hear about it. It's it's one of those movies that's just such a cultural touchstone that you almost don't feel like you need to see it. And then somebody sees it and talks about it. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I actually should rewatch that since I haven't seen it in 40 years. And so I'm excited that you made this recommendation. When I rented the movie, I had it for a 24 hour period and I just fired it up a second time. I don't really get an opportunity to see too many Kirk Douglas films. And this is prime Kirk Douglas. I mean, what do you think about him just overall? I, I've always enjoyed him. I think he uh, was, you know, I mean, obviously he's got some some classics like Spartacus, but I really actually always thought Kirk Douglas was a, a very, very 
uh, engaging actor. Um, you know, he's had some other movies. One I particularly remember is uh, it's a it's a little less known one called Seven Days in May with Burt Lancaster trying to stage a coup, a military coup, and Kirk Douglas trying to basically stop him. I haven't seen it for a while, but I remember it being very good. But yeah, I like Kirk Douglas. I'm never upset if I see Kirk Douglas is going to be in a movie because I think he he had a lot, you know, he had a very, very 50s, 60s kind of, of attitude, you know, very similar to the way Steve McQueen or Paul Newman kind of approached roles. It was just a, a, a very charismatic uh, person on screen. So, and I think you're right this is probably going to be peak kirk douglas absolutely and i just can't emphasize enough that i went into this to see the giant squid scene and again completely worth it but i found myself just incredibly engaged with the film and that was something i honestly wasn't expecting like i don't even know if i was going into this to make this a recommendation i was watching the jaws supplemental material i'm like i want to see that giant squid scene again and then as i'm watching the movie i'm like oh no this is this is making the list this is 100% making the list. Well, and this is also an opportunity to talk about, again, an actor that a lot of younger people may not be familiar with, which is James Mason. That is a name that people should seek out because he, again, was always good in every movie he ever did. You know, one of his last roles is one that is definitely going to be a stay tuned. He's a, a major part in uh, a Paul Newman film called The Verdict that we've kind of mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, James Mason had an illustrious, phenomenal career. Um, and so he's another one of those names. If you see his name in a movie, odds are high, the movie's going to have some value. Whether the entire movie works or not, you're going to at least get something out of it just because James Mason was always so damn good. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about The Verdict. I know we keep referencing it and we keep bringing it up, but I'm very excited about talking about that film. Me too, man. I think there's a lot to talk about with it. All right. So what do you got for your third pick of the episode? All right. So my third pick is one that I had seen multiple times before. It's one of my favorites. It might actually be my favorite movie from the 1950s. It's also one of the most important movies for my what I like about movies and the types of movies that I like. It's one of the most important movies of all time. I'm not sure that there's been a movie that casts a bigger shadow over the types of movies that I enjoy than this one. And I'm not sure that there's been a director that casts a bigger shadow over the directors that I enjoy uh, than this one. You know, last episode I talked about Jean-Pierre Melville and how influential he was on all the filmmakers I liked. This director, even more influential. And, And this director can rightfully stake a claim as the greatest director of all time. It's arguable, like all things, it's subjective, but I think objectively, this director could throw his hat in the ring. Uh, So my next recommendation is uh, a 1954 Japanese movie directed by the almighty Akira Kurosawa, and it is The Seven Samurai. For those who've never seen it, The Seven Samurai, you've seen it. Look, you may be listening to this and going, I've never seen The Seven Samurai. You know what? You've seen it. Because the thing has been remade, copied, ripped off so many times that you have actually seen this movie, even though you've never seen it. The Seven Samurai is basically a a very straightforward story for such a long movie. And this is an epic. It's 207 minutes long. And it is worth every second of that 207 minutes. A village is, a small village is uh, attacked by bandits previously before the movie starts. The bandits are about to attack him again, and the bandits realize that the 
village has not harvested their crops yet. So they're going to come back after the harvest uh, so that they have things that they can steal. This gives the village, who has no ability to defend themselves and very little money, some time to figure out what to do. And the village elder basically says, you need to go into the city and you need to hire samurai, but specifically hire hungry samurai, samurai who will work for next to nothing. And... Uh, a, a small party from the village goes into this city and they find a, a initially one sort of elder respected samurai who agrees and then slowly but surely builds a team of seven. And the seven go back to the village and have to defend it from the bandits. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it was remade as a Western twice, as the three times as the Magnificent Seven. It was remade as a Pixar movie, as a Bug's Life. It was an episode of the animated Star Wars The Clone Wars where Anakin and Obi-Wan are the two main, you know, samurai defending this this small uh, city on a planet. This thing is one of the most influential movies of all time. And I first saw it about 20 years ago because it was like, well, I like a lot of these other things. I guess I should sit down and watch the original, but I'm sure it's going to be old and it's going to be dated and... My God, this movie is so fucking good, Dana. I, I cannot describe how good The Seven Samurai is. Have you ever seen it? I've seen every version but this one. <laughs> I mean, I've seen The Magnificent Seven, even the, even the most recent one. And I, 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 listen, I love those movies. I honestly didn't put the correlation between A Bug's Life until you mentioned it. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that's that's exactly it. So, yeah, look, I again, I have, I'm always trying to be as honest and as transparent as possible. I've never seen a Kurosawa, Kurosawa film before, but I do know this one to be his sort of magnum opus, if you will. Would you agree with that? Or is he made beyond this? Um, boy, it's tough. The man has made so many amazing movies. You know, uh, if I were to kind of just throw out a list of people are like, you know, I've heard of like you, they're like, I've heard of Kurosawa. Um, I, you got Rashomon, you got Kagamusha, you got Ron, you got the Hidden Fortress, which was the, the primary influence for Star Wars. There's so many great movies. This is certainly his most culturally important one. Um, it, it's the one that, uh, like, again, it, we talk on this show a little bit about how there's movies that periodically come along and you've got cinema before this movie and cinema after this movie. And this is one of those game-changing movies. So in terms of scope and scale and cultural influence, yes, it's definitely his his best movie, his most important one. But asking me to pick my favorite Kurosawa is kind of like asking me to pick my favorite kid, even though I don't have kids. Actually, you know what? I could pick my favorite kid easier than I could pick my favorite Kurosawa. <laughs> um, but no, like, this thing is, it, it just holds up. And what is also great about it is it is black and white, and it's actually shot in a standard uh, one three uh, one three three to one aspect ratio. It's not widescreen or anything like that. But the camera movement and placement and fight choreography and stuff that Kurosawa is able to do in the nineteen fifties in nineteen fifty four is absolutely crazy. Like this movie feels so modern, even though it's you know cropped and and. 
black and white. It still feels so modern. I, I love the Magnificent Seven, the the uh, Yul Brenner Magnificent Seven. I actually really like the remake too. We can talk about that down the road. But but that the the Yul Brenner Magnificent Seven almost feels more dated than the Seven Samurai does uh, because Kurosawa is just so good. And the the other thing I love about it, and the reason why I think it justifies the length. Um, because, you know, people that have listened, you know, I very much about efficient movies. I'm very much I, I give credit when a movie gets in and gets out and gets its job done. But what this does so well is give us so much time with each of the individual samurai that they are such fully formed characters that we we grow to love each and every one of them. There isn't one. You know, a lot of times when you have sort of a group men on a mission movie like this you get a couple of leads and then you got the guys that are basically like the the red shirts right you know they're gonna be the red shirts this doesn't have that kurosawa spends so much time all of these these seven samurai that you love all of them and you're invested in what happens to all of them and and if you've seen any version of this, it's not really a spoiler to say they don't all make it out of this and it it really is moving and emotional with what happens to all of them. Plus, he does a great job with the villagers. Some of the villagers are just absolute sons of bitches. They're cowards, and some of them are noble, and it's just such a fully formed movie when it comes to the character work going on in it. I, I'm Again, I could probably go on for about three hours about this movie, but uh, it's it's so good. <laughs> well, I, I do have a question, and this is one that just sort of popped in my mind. Tell me again what year this came out. 1954. Okay. Let me ask you this. Can you speak to how this movie was received in the United States? Because it's nine years after the end of World War II. And I'm wondering if there was any, you know, sort of pushback because we had just nine years away from being at, you know, a devastating war with Japan. You know, I can't, I I honestly can't. I probably could if I had a little bit of time to research it. What I can tell you is I I do know it was well received when it came out. I don't, we don't have any numbers. I just pulled up some numbers on it and, and we really only have, like audience numbers from its 2002 re-release. So I can't really speak to it. I'm trying to pull up some old reviews, but it, you know, when you're that far back, it's a little, little hard to say. Um, I do know that it took a little bit for Kurosawa to sort of work his way in, but it can't have been received that badly because the one thing I will say is the Magnificent Seven came out in 1960. Yeah. So, I mean, they immediately got on the remake train on this one. So it can't have been received that poorly. At least it's probably one of those movies where only your East and West Coast cities maybe got it. I mean, it's very likely that, you know, like where I live, wouldn't have even seen it until well after it had come out. But I can't really speak. I don't want to speak from ignorance and I can't really speak more to it. Than sure, that. sure. Okay. Uh, no, I was just, I was just kind of curious because I was thinking about the, the time period that, when that came out. But also, if you look at it, like, you know, two years later, Godzilla gets an American re-release. And, and I think, I think, Maybe movies even helped. Maybe movies even helped the relations between the two countries. Well, and I think the other thing is, is and again, I'm not a historian. Um, if Jarrett's listening, you know, I apologize if I if I misstate. We kind of really I mean, we occupied Japan. We we were in the middle of helping Japan rebuild. So I don't know necessarily that there would have been that kind of cultural 
concern. What I can say about the movie, too, I just pulled up the nominations. You know, it was a winner at the Venice Film Festival. It was nominated for several BAFTAs. It was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, uh, technical categories, but nonetheless. So it was clearly, and it looks like the Academy Awards were in 1957. So it looks like it took a couple years for sure. it to make it here. Okay. Okay. Excellent. That's just, just a thought that popped in my head there. I was just kind of curious because uh, it, it seems to me that it, it transcended anything that negative that may have been happening. And I think that's a really positive thing. And, and absolutely. And, and Kurosawa on the whole, I think, transcended a lot of that stuff because he was... I mean, game recognized game, right? Like when you see a director like Kurosawa, if you're at all interested in movies, you just have to bow to the talent that is on display with any of his movies. For the final pick of the episode, I wanted to go with, you know, you talk about movies you've seen the most from the 1950s. There's one movie that I've probably seen more times than any other that came out in the 1950s. And that was because I was just always genuinely interested and fascinated by you know, the special effects that were on display. And I'm talking about a movie that came out in 1953. But to talk about it, I got to go back to it's based off of a novel that was published in 1898 by acclaimed science fiction writer H.G. Wells. And the movie I'm talking about is, of course, War of the Worlds. This was an incredibly popular book when it came out very, very much ahead of its time for the time period. Uh, The basic plot of the film is very, very simple. Invaders from Mars attack the world, the world tries to fight back, and that's it. I'm not saying anything more than that, because if you've never seen the movie, never read the book, never listened to the Orson Welles live radio broadcast that he did in 1938 on Halloween, when he scared pretty much the whole goddamn country into believing that there was a literal Martian invasion, I don't want to spoil any aspects of it. But I want to talk about the movie that came out in 1953, directed by Byron Haskins, starring Gene Barry and Anne Robinson. Because, and we're inevitably going to talk about the remake that came out in 2005, but I'm going to tell you just, I really enjoy this one more. It is such a fascinating film to watch because it is a special effects tour de force. And I'm going on this special effects train lately. You know, I've been very vocal about, oh, CGI takes all the, you know, all the, you know, the art out of, you know, pulling off practical effects. What they did with War of the Worlds was so impressive that it won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. And it's gone on to influence every science fiction film we've seen since then. It also is responsible for kicking off a number of knockoffs that came out in the 1950s. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. But at its core, it's a really interesting study on the uh, sort of the human condition and how, you know, we all, all the different countries, we may have our differences, we may fight, but everybody came, all the countries, all the leaders came together to try to fight this unstoppable force. And I don't want to say more than that, but the movie's great because of the special effects. It's great because of the performances, especially the performance by Gene Barry, who's, who's outstanding. And it's just a it's a masterpiece. And I know, I know it's a little hokey and it might be considered a B-movie, but I fucking love this movie. Mike, have you seen War of the Worlds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is a great recommendation. I've seen, I've seen, I've read the book. I've listened to the Orson Welles broadcast. I've obviously seen the 50s version and the Spielberg version. Yeah, this, this movie is so 50s sci-fi. And I don't mean that as a negative. I kind of miss 50s sci-fi uh, because there was just such a look and, and such a style to the way we did sci-fi in the 50s and especially because you know the 50s 
were such a fertile ground for science fiction in both literature and and cinema because we had not yet started the the really gotten into the space program we hadn't landed on the moon yet and so it was kind of this whole but we were we knew we were getting there we were working towards it it was going to happen at some point and so it was this whole kind of open world to all of us and then kind of like you mentioned the special effects had advanced to a point where they could really do some things that they hadn't been able to do prior um and the you're right dana the special effects work in war of the worlds is stunning i mean it's absolutely brilliant the use of models and matte painting i mean it's the same technology that gave us Star Trek in the 60s and Star Wars in the 70s and and all the way up until we really started seeing CGI in the 80s. I mean, the same techniques were used and they look just as good, especially if you can see a remastered version of of War of the Worlds, you know, a pristine version um, on the biggest screen you can. It just absolutely looks amazing the work that they did on these and i think the movie is you know it's a little different than the original um but i think the movie works i think it especially is as a movie that's coming out sort of at the beginnings or kind of i guess in the first quarter of the cold war there's a lot of of additional things going on there as far as invaders from the outside and those kinds of threats. I think it's a great recommendation. I think it's a great movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I remember it very clearly. Mr. Spielberg is going to come up from time to time throughout the uh, the history or throughout the, uh, the entire run of the show. Mr. Spielberg is going to come up from time to time. And I would be very curious your thoughts on the 2005 version. I don't want to call it a remake. I just want to call it a version of the film. Yeah. Yeah, because it's actually not a remake. You know, it's it's a closer to the Orson Welles, the original Orson Welles broadcast, and, and even to a certain extent the H.G. Wells book than it is the the nineteen fifties movie. So this one might get me in in trouble. Uh, it might be. I'm not going to say it's a bad movie. That would be insane because it's very well done. But it might be my least favorite Spielberg movie. I am. I am not a huge fan of War of the Worlds. I'm not trying to like be out here throwing hot takes and stuff like that. I just think for me, there are some elements of that movie that fail for me so catastrophically that it it breaks the entire movie. And basically it's the kids um i i by and large like dakota fanning i don't think she's ever been worse than she is in that in this movie and justin chatwin is a incredibly bland and his later career kind of proved that out if anybody's seen the dragon ball z movie i'm sorry and b what they do the story arc of his character it's it's so not fully fleshed out that it's it's not very interesting. I don't want to get into spoilers with decisions that his character makes, but I actually was relieved to to see him make that decision so I don't have to deal with him anymore. And it's really it was really surprising for me because, I mean, if there's one thing that Spielberg is known for, well, there's special effects, but two, it's working with kids and working with young actors. And I was just so surprised that I, I thought both these the performances and the character arcs failed so badly on top of that and again i don't want to get into spoilers if people haven't seen it but when tim robbins shows up he's in a completely i don't know what movie tim robbins came from but it's not war of the worlds uh so i don't want to get in anymore because i know a lot of people like the movie and again i'm not out here trying to throw hot takes uh 
everybody that's listened knows I love Spielberg. I'm not I'm not out here trying to just be like, oh, I'm going to make a bold statement. But War of the Worlds does not work for me at all. My thing about War World and I saw this day one, the day it opened up first showing on a Friday and because I'm such a fan of the of the 1953 and of course I'm such a fan of Spielberg I will tell you that the first 30 minutes of the movie really had me I mean the whole scene where the the Martians the tripods if you will are introduced I mean that is that's fucking as to to, to use a phrase you like to use quoting another podcast it, it's pure cinema that whole oh, it's perfect. that whole yeah. scene where we're introduced to the uh, the tripods and it was an exercise in tension. When the movie was over, I will not say that I hated the movie. I will say that I was disappointed by the movie. But I was engaged the entire time because I kept thinking, okay, Spielberg's going to get me to the point. He's going to get me to a certain level with this film because with his grand, you know, epics, he always does this. I thought the movie opened so big with the introduction of the Martians. And then that was the peak of the film. And it was just kind of a slow journey downhill. I thought it was very contained. I thought it was a very small story about an incident that was happening around the entire world. I mean, honestly, if I'm going to be, I mean, if I'm being blunt about it, Independence Day did it better. They did the, they did the alien invasion better than, than War of the Worlds. And, and people can, you know, be upset with me for saying that, but that's the reality. That's what I truly feel. And I thought the ending, we won't get into spoilers, you know, the, the big climax was very anticlimactic. And I was like, oh, oh, so I guess the movie's over. So I get it. I'm on the same page with you about that one. Yeah. I'll, first of all, people may get after you for that, but I will have your back because I agree with you that I think Independence Day does it better. And again, without getting into spoilers, like if you know the War of the Worlds story, the ending is to a certain extent a bit anticlimactic anyway, because that's kind of but you can have an ending where I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this the right way without getting into spoilers. You can have an ending where a mundane thing stops the threat and still have it be engaging and and riveting. Or you can have an ending where a mundane thing stops the threat and it's anticlimactic. And then you also, again, without getting to spoilers, undo immediately any of the emotional stakes that you've created in your movie in the very last scene of the movie. Like, again, I know people like this movie. I love Spielberg. I really, really don't like this movie at all. So I, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it uh, because point being the 1951 that you recommended or 53, whatever, whenever it came out, uh, that's that's a great movie. Watch that one. It's a lot of fun. And just watch it to see what 1950s special effects and filmmaking looked like because it's so cool. Absolutely. And just to, to just to put a nail on what you said about the very last shot of War of the Worlds, even I audibly said, what the fuck in the theater? And I think I, I think the people sitting in front of me actually turned around and looked at me because I was genuinely like, what? And that's all, that's all I'm going to say. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, you're going to have to watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what we like to do at the end of each episode is we want to give you the listeners an opportunity to find and watch the movies that we talked about on today's show so mike what about your three picks today night of the hunter and seven samurai are both available for uh rental or purchase on all major streaming sites however i i do want to again i mentioned it last week for the first time they're both available on the criterion streaming service and i really do recommend that streaming service if you are interested in getting into classic and 
or foreign cinema, you're just not going to find a better repository of it. It's a little expensive in terms of streaming services. We've been conditioned to, you know, be willing to pay $6.99 a month, but it's not any more expensive than Netflix. And given the current status of Netflix and and the mediocre stuff they continue to to pump out, I actually think you'll get more money, uh, your better dollars worth out of the Criterion channel. Both are also available on beautiful Blu-rays from the Criterion collection. The Searchers is available for rental or purchase everywhere. It's also Warner Brothers put out a, I think it was Warner Brothers, maybe Paramount. In any case, there is a Blu-ray of it that is also gorgeous. And again, The Searchers, please, please, please watch that on the biggest screen you can. Um, If you have a little tiny TV, call up a friend and see if if you've got a friend that's got a big TV. Hell, call me up and fly to Salt Lake. I'll I'll play it here (laughs) in my house. See that on the biggest screen you can. Excellent. Uh, Let's see. For my picks, The House on Hint, I'll tell you how I watched everything. I'll tell you how it's available. I watched The House on Haunted Hill on Tubi, which is an ad-supported free streaming service. Uh, And again, we've talked about this before. Tubi's really, they're really limited on the amount of ads that play. In this particular one, there was two ads that played before the movie and only one during the entire run of the film. Uh, It's also available on Canopy, Epic Streaming Service, and Pure Flix. Uh, it is, of course, available to rent and purchase across all major platforms. War of the Worlds is streaming on two platforms right now, which is Canopy and Fobo, which we've talked about both of those in the past. It's also available to rent and purchase across all major platforms. And 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is available to rent and purchase across all major platforms. And it's currently streaming on Hoopla. So, Mike... If people want to follow you on social media, how can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and you can also find me at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will also find, uh, as we talk about every week, our continually updating list of uh, movies we've recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. And so if you've listened to us and you want to find out what movies we've recommended, you can go to that, follow me there, and find that list. Uh, with this episode, we will be at 99. next episode we cross 100 the next episode which we're going to have we're going to be having returning guest jay skipworth on the next episode whoever makes the first pick will be picking the 100th movie in the 20th century movie club so that's this is going to be interesting because i'm not going to spoil it right now but we have kind of an interesting theme set up for volume 17 We are going to have to make special note of the 100th pick because that's going to be a big deal. I can't believe we're getting to 100 movies, Mike. I know. It's crazy. It's awesome. That's insane. There's going to come a time where where I'm going to say, I can't believe we're getting to 1,000 movies. (laughs) Well, and what I love most, so I just pulled up the list and I'm scrolling through it. What I love most is just the, the... you know, the idea of this show was to talk about movies that, that mattered to us and we thought were important. So we've got such a wild variety. I mean, I'm looking back at some of the first recommendations we've made, like The Wraith. And we've got The Wraith and The Searchers and, you know, Network on the same list. Like, it's <laughs> it's bananas. It's so awesome. I, I love I love doing this. Sorry, I don't want to pat us on the back, but I, I love doing this show, man. It's so great. It's awesome. And before we go, so if people want to follow this show on social media, we've got two Twitter set up. We've got a, a Twitter page for the show, which is at Dana Buckler Show. We've got, I've got a personal Twitter, which is at Dana Buckler. And there's an Instagram page set up, which is the Dana Buckler Show. You can also email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. So, Mike, thanks for coming on. I'll look forward to talking to you next week where we're going to be talking about the 100th movie. 
Thank you, sir. I'm looking forward to it. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.